You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. What exactly makes Beyonce the queen bee? How do we feel about Ariana Grande's use of rap vernacular? And most importantly, what's better, chamomile or spiced chai? We ponder all of this and more on Hot Tea Hot Takes, now a part of the Rock Candy Podcast Network. Our show is just two friends drinking tea and discussing music, culture, politics, and anything else that comes to mind. We cover everything from Mozart to Megan the Stallion. New uploads are posted weekly. Look for it wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you soon. Bye. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, before we get started with this show, as always, I have to thank my patrons. For this week, I have to thank Bryce Sun, Bridget Nix, Reverend Jaden, and Greg. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this show without you. You are maintaining this show, ensuring that I can bring you interesting content to the public for free. And if you would like to join their number, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for a dollar a month or more, you get extra content every single week. And it really, really helps. All right. Well, this week, I'm delighted to welcome Philip Goff back to the show. Philip, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Thanks for having me back. Nice to see you again. Yes, you too. So we talked in 2020, I believe, Uh right before the pandemic hit. Right. Yeah. It was January. It was like in January or February. Or maybe it was early. Maybe it was in 2019. And then I don't I don't remember. I just remember we were we talked and then it felt like the world fell apart. Um, (laughs) But um, it's great to have you back on. So tell us some about who you are and what you do before we get started. I am a philosopher. I teach at uh, Durham University up in the cold north of England. And I am interested in reality. I guess I work mainly on consciousness. I'm interested in how to fit consciousness into our overall theory of reality. And I um, think the traditional scientific approach won't really cut it and defend a slightly wacky view called panpsychism, which I guess we could get mm-hmm. onto. So that's my main focus. But I guess I'm interested in the nature of reality and in, in many in many different aspects and facets of it. Absolutely. You also wrote a fantastic book called Galileo's Error. Um, oh, yeah. I plug I, my book. Yes, you should. You should be, mu- right. you, you need to like pull yourself together. You need to be better at plugging yourself. Yeah, <laughs> but no, like Galileo's, I, I keep wanting to say Galileo's middle finger. I'm like, no, that's another book by Alice Drager. Um, Galileo's Error is a defense of panpsychism for a popular audience. So could you describe what panpsychism is and of course longtime listeners of the show already know what panpsychism is because i've talked about it before but to those who are new to the show what is panpsychism well the word literally means everything has mind pan everything means everything psyche means mind but the way it's standardly understood these days is is it's the view that the fundamental building blocks of reality perhaps fundamental particles like electrons and quarks have 
incredibly simple forms of conscious experience. So, you know, the, the conscious experience of a human being is very rich and complex. You've got emotions and thoughts and colors and sounds and so on. But conscious experience comes in different shapes and sizes. The, you know, the experience of a horse is simpler than that of a human being. Experience of a mouse is simpler still. And as we move to simpler and simpler forms of life, we find simpler and simpler forms of conscious experience. For the panpsychist, this keeps on going right down to the basic building blocks of reality, which have incredibly simple forms of experience to reflect their very simple nature. So, so it doesn't mean literally kind of, it doesn't necessarily mean tables and chairs and rocks and planets have consciousness, although some panpsychists do think that. Uh, it just means that may maybe the, the things they're ma ultimately made up of have very simple forms of experience. And so in that sense, consciousness pervades the universe. Hmm. So would you say that in the panpsychist view, in the same way an atom has spin and mass, etc., it also has consciousness, by which we mean it is like something to be that atom? Yeah, Pretty much. But the way, actually, the way you described it then sounds a little bit dualistic. And this is a very common thought about panpsychism. And, and, and I guess it captures some kinds of panpsychism. But the kind of panpsychism I defend, it, it's not that the particle has its physical properties like and then its interior properties and charge and and these weird consciousness and, properties. Right. And then like a, a more spiritual properties. Yeah, as well, it's that, or something. That, that's that, that's too too dualistic. That's like there's two separate aspects. Rather, the view is strange as it sounds. Its physical properties, like mass, spin, and charge, are forms of consciousness. So that sounds. You know, how what? How do you make sense of that? If if you do physics, my 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 genius niece has just started studying physics at Manchester University. She's learning about mass, spin, and charge. Doesn't seem like she's learning about forms of consciousness. But, um, well, the inspiration, the, the reason contemporary analytic philosophy has returned to thinking about panpsychism is largely because of certain important work by Bertrand Russell in the 1920s. And what he was doing in the 1920s was just thinking really hard about the fact that physics is purely mathematical. And we, we, you know, we sort of take that for granted. But, I mean... This was a radical innovation by Galileo. I talk about in my book, Galileo's Error. And, um, and since then, physics has been kind of completely mathematical. So, so Russell's thing, what, I mean, I guess if you're, a, if you're a scientist, you're often, you know, you just want to do the experiments and get the results. But if you're a philosopher, you want to think, what, what does that, what do we learn about the nature of reality from the fact that physics is purely mathematical. The description it's giving us of the universe is purely mathematical. So there's a couple of ways you could go with that. What, one reaction is to say, well, maybe that shows that the universe at base is made up of mathematics, you know, is kind of made up of numbers and functions and vectors, the kind of things we find in physics. So that's the position the physicist Max Tegmark defends. Um, but another, another possible way you can go is to say, well, maybe there's something underlying the mathematical structures physics identifies. Maybe there's something that those mathematical structures are the structures of, you know, uh, Stephen Hawking had this great line in 
the final page of a brief history of time when he said uh even the final theory of physics will be just will just be a bunch of equations it won't tell us what breathes fire into the equations so so the panpsychist idea is what we have at the fundamental level of reality is just these very simple conscious networks of very simple conscious entities with very simple experiences that behave in very simple predictable ways because they have very simple experiences and then through their interactions they form patterns they form mathematical structures and then the thought is those mathematical structures are the mathematical structures identified by physicists it's it's consciousness that breathes fire into the equations so we sort of we get physics out of consciousness and we can do that because physics is just pure math as you say we say maths over here but physics is pure maths and so as long as you have something that's playing the role of that can realize those mathematical structures you can get physics out of facts about consciousness so it's not like there's the, the conscious stuff and the physical stuff and they're kind of separate it's there's just consciousness stuff but that realizes the mathematical structures of physics sorry that was a little bit long-winded no, no 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 that's great and it's also trying to resolve a really challenging problem which is i guess what people call the hard problem of consciousness which is basically like, how is it that dead material things following the laws of physics give rise or or translate to or whatever this conscious experience that you and I have where we it where we can perceive the world and there is a unique character of all of the colors and experiences. It's a unique experience of what it means to be us and how we experience the world and our thoughts and our visual field and so on, right? And how is it that that, that consciousness where does consciousness fit in this mathematical world that you are describing? And that is the hard problem of consciousness, as I understand it. So would you say that like that's that's the problem that panpsychism is trying to resolve or one problem? Exactly. That's that's the main main motivation. So far, I've been describing this crazy view. Why would you take it at all seriously? Well, the motivation is it offers a particular particularly elegant solution to the hard problem of consciousness. In fact, what, what it does is it kind of turns the hard problem of consciousness on its head. So the standard approach to the hard problem is to say, okay, we start with matter, the matter of the brain, ultimately understood through physics. We start there and then we try and get consciousness out of matter. Now we've been banging our head against a brick wall for many decades now trying to do that and got precisely nowhere you know we've learned a lot about the brain but we've got precisely nowhere with understanding how electrochemical signaling could produce an inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes and i think there's good reasons to think that that that, that, that just can't be done we could we could perhaps talk about that but at any rate there's general consensus that it hasn't been done whether or not it can be done and we and we haven't even made any progress on that it's not like you know we've got a little we've we've explained how it makes pains but we haven't explained how it makes colors or something we're just totally clueless so so 
So that so that hasn't worked out very well getting consciousness out of matter. So the panpsychist does it the other way around. Start with consciousness and get physics and matter out of consciousness. And it turns out actually surprisingly that's really easy because for the reasons we've been discussing because physics is purely mathematical as long as you've got some stuff that realizes the right patterns the right mathematical structures you can get physics out of it so so it's really hard i would argue impossible to get consciousness out of matter really easy to get mm. matter out of consciousness so mm. that's that's the motivation and it sounds you know just listening to you talk i have two thoughts the first is i don't i think that we I don't think that people realize the depth of the hard problem of consciousness, like because we take consciousness for granted. We take consciousness for granted and we take science and the material world for granted. We, it's like the, these two most fundamental things that we experience. We take both of them for granted. And it isn't really until you you start to sit down and explore your own consciousness through something like meditation or maybe psychedelics or through philosophy or whatever it is that you realize that the hard problem is truly a hard problem <laughs> like it yeah. it it's um and so you know i've been 2021 was like the year of meditation for me and i i decided that i need to bone up on my meditation practice so i i really delved into a daily meditation practice primarily with sam harris and i it it really demonstrated to me just how hard of a problem it is <laughs> of of understanding how how on earth is it that this thing that i call my conscious experience can gel or sync or click with the material world in a real way or how does that how does that material world give rise to my consciousness it's a complete mystery it is like truly the most fundamental thing about us our consciousness is maybe the most mysterious thing we've ever encountered so i think that we tend to take that massively for granted and just listening to you talk what you are describing really sounds like ancient mysticism like hindu forms of hinduism or stoicism like con consciousness is is at the heart of everything or consciousness is like at the base of reality but with maybe like a modern philosophical scientific twist yeah the both so two very different points there but both both really interesting i mean i, th I think you're totally right that people don't get the the depth of the hard problem so since the 1990s, people take this very seriously as a serious scientific problem, which wasn't always the case for much of the latter half of the 20th century. Consciousness was just a taboo topic and you you couldn't you couldn't do it was thought you can't do serious science on this. Um, so now people take it seriously, but they but they just they still most people think we just need to do a bit more neuroscience. We just need to do a few more experiments. But, you know, what I want to press is. This isn't just another phenomenon that we haven't done the right experiments. This to being crack, yeah. this being consciousness, consciousness, consciousness. Right. and 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 the, you know th this is the thing. I, the thing I'm about to say now is the thing I'm most passionate about getting across to people. The problem is consciousness is not a publicly observable phenomenon, right? You can't look inside someone's head and see their feelings and experiences. Now, you know, science is used to dealing with things you can't observe, like 
fundamental particles or wave functions or even other universes some physicists entertain the idea of but it's it's really different in all of those cases we postulate things we can't observe to explain what we can observe right that's that's the whole task of science in every other case we're beholden the whole task is to account for the data of public observation experiments in the unique case of consciousness the thing we are trying to explain is not publicly observable and that's a totally unique situation and you know it really constrains our capacity to deal with it experimentally so so you know we, we can to an extent deal with it experimentally because we can although i can't see your consciousness i can ask you what you're feeling and i can scan your brain while i'm doing that and then we can start to uh map up you know which kinds of brain activity are correlated with which kinds of experience and that's a really important experimental scientific project but that's not the full story because what we ultimately want to know is why why do certain kinds of brain activity go along with certain kinds mm. of experience why does brain activity go along with experience at all and because consciousness is not publicly observable that's that's not a question you can just answer an experiment and that kind of makes people nervous and mm-hmm. you know oh, i just want to do the experiments but you know we either pretend it doesn't exist or or we just accept that the standard tools of experimental science aren't going to answer all our questions in this regard right and so i you for for example you cannot prove scientifically that i am conscious exactly it's basically exactly. like like i know i'm conscious but you can't prove yeah. that i'm conscious i could yeah. be like a super intelligent web bot that you're seeing on zoom right now or something <laughs> but but like or you know i could be a philosophical zombie that has all of the underpinning you know has is is in every single way demonstrating normal human behavior going to the grocery store going to a job having this podcast but there isn't a conscious interior experience. Yeah, and absolutely. And so people listening to this might think, oh, well, this is sounding rather far-fetched. Of course you're <laughs> conscious. And I do believe you're conscious, but this has important implications because I think in the public mind, the whole task of science, as I've already said, is accounting for what publicly observable data. Now, if I religiously followed that, as it were, I wouldn't be- post- I wouldn't believe you're conscious. Hmm. If I was just trying to explain your publicly observable behavior, I- I- I'd just postulate a mechanism conscious. to explain it. I would. So, so I- basically, I'd have no grounds. I'm I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm interrupting. No, no, no. Go. So basically, what you're saying is there nowhere in a scientific method of the study of Stephen Bradford Long would consciousness arise. Like there's there. Yeah. Or or it's like. If, if you were to scientifically study Stephen with with scientific tools alone, nowhere would consciousness appear. Yeah, just slight, pretty much a slight qualification. Okay. I guess it depends what you mean by science. Uh, I, I always prefer to say it's it's not that we we can't have a science of consciousness, but we need to rethink what science is. Got it. If but but I think in in a way what you said is totally right because. If we have the the normal standard understanding of science about explaining public observation experiment, then what you said is totally right. If I was just trying to 
do a public, you know, explain everything that's publicly observable about you, I would never have any grounds of postulating consciousness. Now, an interesting case in point of this is that the philosopher Daniel Dennett, he is wonderfully consistent on this, his famous book from the 90s, Consciousness Explained. He appreciates that consciousness in the in the sense that most people use that term is not verifiable by public science. And so he doesn't believe in it, right? He's totally consistent. Hmm. He's consistent. At the other extreme, I'm consistent in thinking, you know, we need to change science to deal with this. I think most people are still in a sort of, in my view, confused middle ground where they think, like, of course, consciousness exists, but they don't appreciate that if consciousness exists, if it's real, which of course it is, then there's something we know to be real. There's, there's something we need to account for that goes beyond public observation experiments. And so the job of science isn't just, you know, isn't just accounting for public observation experiments and then it's job done. There's something extra that we also need our theories to account for and a, 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 a new fundamental datum. And so I think that's where we need to get to as a scientific and philosophical community, appreciating that consciousness is a date, the reality of consciousness is a data point in its own right over and above observation and experiments. Um, that's the thing I'm most kind of passionate mm. about getting across. So it, my perception, and I might be wrong about this, and this was really one of the things that I wanted to have you on again to talk about, is how it, so first of all, to kind of clarify my position, I'm not committed to panpsychism, but I'm open to it. Like I'm, I'm open to a lot of shit. I don't, know if it's true or not when people ask me what I think about some big philosophical or political or whatever idea I'm like I think I'm a grocery store manager I don't think I have a clue <laughs> uh, like I I know how to sell groceries that's my real job actually is I manage a grocery store so uh, I'm cool. I'm not committed to I'm not committed to the idea but I find it really really fascinating and my perception is that it's gaining some measure of popularity in certain academic worlds and that that I would previously have not expected. And so, for example, Annika Harris, her book came out recently. I forget when it was. It was a year or two ago called Conscious. And Annika Harris is Sam Harris's wife. And Annika Harris says that she is oh she explores panpsychism in her book and says that she is open to panpsychism being true. Sam Harris I think has said something similar and that's like very much not what I would have anticipated from someone like Sam Harris. And by the way because this is the internet and and we're all trigger happy I have to clarify I'm not a fan of everything Sam Harris has said or done and so me bringing him up on the show is not Dear listeners, a a a you know blanket uh, endorsement of everything that Sam Harris has said. <laughs> Dear Twitter, before you attack me, just so you know, yeah. But so all that to say, it's coming from people who I would not have expected someone like Sam Harris to say that. And so I guess I, I what is the state of panpsychism in as a philosophy? in the like the scientific community 
Absolutely. And I mean, just on, it's interesting that what were once called the, uh, the four horsemen of the, of new atheism. I mean, they're all kind of all over the place on, on consciousness. So, I mean, so Daniel Dennett, who we just talked about is, is this kind of radical, almost consciousness denying uh, philosopher, Sam Harris, as you say, I think is, 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 is pretty close to, to my side, certainly in, mm-hmm. in, in, taking the hard problem very seriously and pretty much the way the way my side of the debate would take it and openness to panpsychism I think probably follows from that Richard Dawkins sort of seems to take the problem seriously but um and uh, I don't know the late Chris Hitchens actually but yeah so look I mean yeah I, I I think that a lot has changed in the last 10 or 15 years you know when I was first looking for academic jobs actually well-meaning professors said, Maybe don't mention that panpsychism stuff, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but it's it's just a lot has changed, and it's I mean still a minority view, but it's 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 just transformed into into a a well respected, even though minority position. I mean I mean one sign of this this just just published quite recently a special issue of the Journal of Consciousness Studies with nineteen essays responses to my to my book Galileo's Error not just by philosophers but also by scientists like uh, Carlo Rovelli, Sean Carroll, um, Lee Smolin, Anil Seth, Christoph Koch um, some very critical you know as it should be in these matters of great controversy but uh, you know I, I think I've been I've had some great interactions with Sean Carroll who's in, the physicist Sean Carroll who's he's actually incredibly clued up uh, for for someone who's not a professional philosopher, clued up philosophically, I mean, of, of course he's clued up as a physicist. That's his training and profession. But you know, and even though him and, and Neil Seff, for example, you know, strongly disagree with me, I think they they take the position seriously enough uh, to to engage with it in a serious way. And other philosophers, other scientists, like um, I mean, Lee Smolin, his contribution to this volume was thinking rather speculatively obviously about whether the fundamental rethinking of physics we have to do to bring together our best theory of the very big namely general relativity with our best theory of the very small namely quantum mechanics might involve a role for consciousness as as a fundamental feature of reality another another interesting contribution actually by a scientist was jonathan delafield butt who's a Sci- uh, an experimental psychologist professor at the University of Strathclyde who has found that taking he oh so he's his career has been studying autism experimentally and he's discovered that thinking about working on experimenting on autism within a panpsychist framework he believes provides a deeper explanatory basis for understanding the phenomenon and so I'm actually finding you know more and more scientists getting in touch with me uh, neuroscientists, physicists, seeing seeing a connection to their work. And I mean, this is one of the great things about writing a, a book aimed at a general audience. I wrote a, in 2017 a, an academic book, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, which has done pretty well amongst ac- academic philosophers. But, you know, it's pretty hard to read if you don't have a PhD in philosophy. But then wrote a book aimed at a general audience. And that's been great for connecting to the public, but also connecting to the to the rest of the scientific community so i would like to um at some point begin to set up some kind of network of um of scientists and philosophers from a wide range of backgrounds who are all working on this kind of topic actually just finally 
there are kind of some hard stats on 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 its place in philosophy. I don't know if you've know this uh this this Phil Papers survey um Mm-mm. which is um no reason why you would know actually i don't know what. uh I'm, um, i am on top of a lot of shit but i'm not on top of that <laughs> it's it's uh <laughs> it's it's still pretty obscure but it's a big deal in in academic philosophy so they've done this huge survey of the opinion the philosophical views of anglophone philosophers in hmm. anglophone philosophy professors in philosophy departments so you know asking them do you believe in god do you think we have free will what's the meaning of life and so on and on consciousness, the results are about 50% are materialists. So that's still the, the view that has the most, is the, the biggest number of adherents. So that's the view that we can roughly, we can explain consciousness in conventional scientific terms. But then 30% uh, are anti-materialists opposed to think we can't explain consciousness in conventional scientific terms and then 15 20 percent are sort of undecided or don't like the question or something philosophers are always awkward and then of the 30 percent who oppose materialism about three quarters of them are dualists so they think consciousness is non-physical in some sense and no is it three quarters or two thirds i can't remember now i think it's two thirds actually no yeah it's two a little bit better for it Two thirds are dualists and one third are panpsychists. So it's still very much a kind of minority position. Mm. But the last time they did this, you know, panpsychism wasn't even mentioned. So it's really become it's kind of the third the third position. Um, a little bit like in Britain, we have we have two big parties, Labour and Conservatives, and then we've got the the Liberal Democrats, the sort of a big third party. So you're so it's sort you're, of you're the Green Party of we're the Green Party yeah. <laughs> just, of, of philosophy of consciousness. <laughs> um, so it's but it's but it's 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 on the table. It's it's one of the positions people now feel, you know, they have to consider, they have to take seriously, and you know, I mean, the trajectory is upwards and. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of things I could mention, actually. I don't want to talk too much, but one exciting thing, again, only in academic philosophy, but there's this guy, Michael Tai, who you won't know if you're you're not heavily in academic philosophy, but huge figure, a huge figure of materialism, a very influential materialist going back to the 80s, has just converted to a form of panpsychism. And that's like, it's like it's like Richard Dawkins becoming a Christian. Or something. <laughs> wow! And um, another big notable or Sa- thing, or Sam Harris becoming a Muslim, or yeah, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a bit less extreme, <laughs> but um, the um, and just one more thing. I mean, the big annual philosophy conference in the UK hmm. uh, had a, a a plenary session on panpsychism for the first time last summer. Wow. So, in all sorts of ways, this is. You know, it's not like everyone believes it now, but it, no one agrees on anything in philosophy. But it, it, it's become on the table, uh, you know, uh, even to to some extent among neuroscientists. It's on. It's it's part of the conversation now, in in a way that it wasn't. Yeah. And so, what? So you you mentioned the one philosopher who was like Dawkins converting to Christianity. What was his name again? Michael Ty T Y E. Okay, so Michael Ty, uh, you don't need to speak for him uh on you know on his behalf but what what was it that that you know would convert him kind of a lifelong materialist to a panpsychist position 
Good question. And so I still haven't read his book. I need to get around to this. But <laughs> um, but it, but I, I understand that the, the basic thing that's converted him is actually something I've been, I don't think this is too technical. It's something I've been thinking a lot about recently, which is the issue of whether consciousness can be vague in this kind of slightly technical philosophical sense where something's vague if you can have borderline cases of it. So for example, being tall is vague. Like some people are definitely tall. Some people are definitely not tall, but then there are board. I mean, I'm, I'm in the borderline case. It's probably, I'm kind of neither definitely tall nor definitely not tall. Baldness is another one that I'm entering into now. Like, you know, some people are definitely bald. If you've got no hair, some people are definitely not bald, but I'm kind of, am I bald? Am I not bald? It's getting thin. Right. Now here's a question. Could, could, is, could consciousness be like that? So, a good way of framing it like could there be some creature that's let's say snails for the sake of an example let's say could it be that snails are in the borderline case so then they're not conscious they're not definitely conscious they're not definitely non-conscious they're 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 in the borderline case now i just think that makes no sense at all you know they might have very simple consciousness but they either have experience or they don't you know it, it can't you know, mm-hmm. even if they've just got a little bit of experience, either the lights are on or they're not. Very good paper by the philosopher Eric Schwitzgabel on, on this recently, uh, which you should get on Eric Schwitzgabel's. Um, he defends with a view he calls crazyism, which is that <laughs> whatever whatever the solution to consciousness is, it's going to be crazy. I, mean, <laughs> I feel like okay i feel like that is my position i feel like <laughs> i feel like i have finally discovered my position on consciousness <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so so i think so i think michael ty's really on board with that he thinks it doesn't make sense for consciousness to be vague and then mm. this makes a big problem now if we think about if you're not a panpsychist when you start to think about the emergence of consciousness either in evolutionary history or just waking up or like a fetus, an embryo becoming a fetus. So if you think consciousness can't be vague, you know, something's either definitely conscious or not, then there's going to have to be an utterly sharp cutoff point right? where right. something becomes conscious. Like, you know, with let's imagine the embryo, you know, presumably let's say an embryo isn't conscious, so it's becoming a fetus. There's going to be some utterly sharp cutoff point when like an atom moves a tiny bit, and that just seems really implausible because, I mean, in general, this you don't have this problem because most things are vague. Like there's no exact hmm. point where someone gets old, you know, it's vague. It's They enter a borderline case. Uh, but if consciousness can't be vague like that, then there's going to be some utterly sharp cutoff point. And, and that's, that seems really implausible. So it becomes more plausible to think well, it's just there all along in in some form, hmm. and in evolutionary history, it becomes more complex. Natural selection molds it into more complex forms. In fact, soon after Darwin, many many philosophers and psychologists saw the connection to a panpsychist worldview to Darwinism. You know, if you're a panpsychist, you just think there were simple forms of consciousness, and through evolution, they became more more complex forms of consciousness. So it's it's that kind of 
that th- it's those kinds of considerations that um, are motivating Michael Ty. Does that kind of make sense? That does make sense. And, you know, I find myself having like these exact same thoughts when I watch my tarantula. I have a pet tarantula named Gertrude mm. and she's oh. Gertrude, the tarantula. She's mostly like a fluffy, cantankerous paperweight. But and and but this might be because I I am anthropomorphizing her some, so I always have to be careful of that. But it seems like there is definitely something there. Like there's definitely yeah there's definitely a a spark of something. She she kind of has her own personality. She kind of has her she she responds she reacts she she, some days she likes to be petted other days she doesn't and so she has like weird moods some some days she prefers to hide other days she's out and about like there's something there but it's but it's a ganglia her her brain isn't a brain it's a ganglia it's just this random collection of nerves and so it's and so i find myself asking okay at what point like does an arachnid have consciousness and what life forms beneath arachnids have caught con- and, and at what level of complexity does consciousness churn on? Like do plants have yeah. consciousness? How do I know? Like at what point does it turn on or off? And so, these, I, and so I find myself asking like the same questions. Yeah. I mean, and, and, it's it's certainly not the case that everyone is a panpsychist now, but the, the trajectory, I think, of scientists and philosophers is definitely to attributing consciousness to more things. You know, it used to be the consensus that fish were not conscious, that birds were not conscious, that babies were not conscious, you know, which is why or, we often... Or dogs, cats and dogs. Like, yeah. like it used to be, like I read, um, I forget where I read this, but frequently you know horrible 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 things were done to animals because it was assumed that they were just kind of automatons they were that there was not a an inner conscious experience and and so that justified horrific things being done to animals and it kind of you know goes back to the point of what you were saying earlier in the episode where looking at the creature itself you cannot determine whether there is or is not consciousness and in previous ages people have looked at super intelligent creatures like cats and dogs and whatnot and decided there was no conscious experience there absolutely yeah i mean and certainly rene descartes thought that animals were just mere mechanisms and yeah i mean he was partly it might it might make a difference you know the kind of technology you have at the time you know mm. descartes when descartes lived they just started getting these very basic automatons i think were they run by water or something any i can't remember the details They're i read creepy as fuck too <laughs> yeah 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 you see these things so i mean you can imagine descartes thinking that's pretty impressive what you can do with just a mechanism mm-hmm. so maybe animals are like that and um but then you know now we have computers and you think jesus christ you know what they can do and just with kind of as a mere mechanism so you think oh maybe that's what's that's what's going on as with us as well. D- Descartes, you know, so Descartes thought a mechanism could never have language, could never sort of respond in a meaningful way because he thought language was essentially creative and um, involved responding in new ways to new contexts. So he thought that uh, a mechanism could never achieve that. But, you know, as you start to look at AI and, yeah, I mean, it's, as I say, you know, in, in the case of human beings, 
we can make some progress identifying what it what is required for consciousness. Although, like, I mean, even there, actually, there's there's not really any consensus. There's there's mm. there's huge debate over whether consciousness is in the front of the brain or in the back of the brain, and um, I mean, this partly depends on. Some people think there's a dispute among scientists on whether you could have experiences that you don't notice. Right? Yes, uh, right. <laughs> so, so like take the you know like the clothes on your body now, the feel of your clothes on your. Now I've mentioned that you're sort of attending to it, and but before I mentioned it, were you aware? Were you aware of the clothes on your body? So some some philosophers and scientists want to say. You know, it doesn't make you if, if you weren't aware of it, you didn't experience it. Um, it's only when you actually attend to it that you experience it. But other other philosophers want to say, yeah, you before I mentioned it, you you experienced the, the feel of the clothes on your body. It's just that you didn't notice it. You weren't aware that you were experiencing it. And um, and which way you go on that? you're going to end up with really different predictions for your neuroscientific theory. And so, yeah. if, you know, if you think there's a close connection between what we call attention, like attending to a mental state and experience, then you're going to think it's, it's located in the front of the brain where you've got things like working memory and so on. Whereas those who think, no, you can have all sorts of experiences you're not aware of. They tend to think it's at the back of the brain. And so, I mean, even in the human case, <laughs> It's just a bloody mess. As soon as, and as we get to creatures more distant from human beings, it just, it looks really hard to, to settle the matter. And um, it's a mess, but, mm. but, you know, I just think we, we've just got to do the best we can and have our best guess at, um, at what the facts are here. So you mentioned that there was, um, a journal that published several responses to your book. If you were to Iron Man the arguments against panpsychism, what would that position be? You know, you have to subscribe to the journal to, to get the papers, but a lot of the authors have put them online and I've got a blog post with uh, links to all to all the, to many of the papers. And so Sean Carroll's is freely available online. And then my response. So I've got a, a paper responding to all the papers. So then there's my response. And then Sean Carroll came on to, uh, to, to my podcast, Mind Chat, quick plug there, which I run with um, someone who's got the polar opposite opinion to me on consciousness, another philosophy professor, Keith Frankish. He doesn't believe consciousness exists. So the game is- I should have him I, on the show. Yeah, you should do. That'd He's be great. fun. So I think consciousness is everywhere. He thinks it's nowhere. Uh, so we both agree that um, you can't explain consciousness in conventional scientific terms. So I draw from that, you know, we need to rethink science. He draws from that. It doesn't exist. It's like magic or fairy dust or something. Anyway, I'm digressing. So we had Sean Carroll on. We had a three hour debate about this. And and then he wrote a blog post. And then we've been arguing on Twitter. And I think we're going to get him back on. But but basically, basically, the argument is. There's no more aspects to this, but one part of it is, is how much how much does physics constrain our theory of consciousness? So Sean thinks, you know, we already really have a a a pretty strong understanding of the the physics in our bodies and brains. So it's it's well known, and I referred to it earlier that 
physics is not complete because our best theory of big things, general relativity, doesn't doesn't fit together with our best theory of little things. But actually, the areas where they clash um, only, only turn up really in very in, on, in extreme circumstances, like when you're about to fall in a black hole or something. In the ordinary terrestrial circumstances of the Earth, actually, we can bring those theories together. So Sean Carroll thinks we know we know the physics in our bodies and brains, what he calls the core theory. And so if if consciousness were playing a fundamental feature in, in, in the physical world, then that would mess up our physics. Right. Because we'd have to take that into account. And so. There must be something wrong with my theory. Right? So so he thinks, you know, we should start with what we do understand, like the physics of our bodies and brains and fit consciousness in somehow around that rather than what I do, which is the other way around. So, I mean, I mean, partly I, I just still think he doesn't quite get how this how the panpsychist view works. So it's, it's not that as, a, as, as we've already touched on, it's not that consciousness is this extra thing that we need to plug into our physics. The idea is consciousness underlies physics. Here's another analogy to put the point. If you think of like software and hardware, right? If you think, you know, suppose you understand the software of your computer and then you understand there's this mechanism, this hardware underneath it. That's not like some new thing. That's what underlies the software. It's, it's the, the hardware that makes Microsoft Word run. So for the panpsychist, if you think of physics as like the software, it's like the program and consciousness is the hardware that underlies it. Hmm. Physics is just this abstract mathematical program and physics kind of runs the show. So that's one dispute. But also, also, I just think, I just think we don't know enough about the brain yet to know whether there are um, new causal forces that arrives in living brains that are not apparent to physicists because physicists deal with um you know their experiments are, are in quite specific circumstances we 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 really don't know very much about the causal dynamics of a living brain we the great book by uh, matthew cobb the neuroscientist the idea of the brain which is wonderful i recommend it to everyone it's like a wonderful intellectual history of our scientific understanding of the brain going back to when we thought the mind was in the heart but right, basically, you know, we know we know a lot about the basic chemistry of the brain, how neurons fire, calcium chambers, action potentials. We know a lot about large scale functions. So like the top and the bottom, what we're almost clueless on is how the large scale functions of the brain are realized at the cellular level, how the brain bloody works. And I think we would need to know a lot more about that. So before we knew whether everything's reducible to underlying chemistry or physics. So it's like we we can point to correspondences. Maybe that's the wrong word, but it's like what we can what we can point at is okay, we know that this part of the brain or this function happens when this experience happens in consciousness, but we can't explain why. Is that what I'm hearing you yeah. say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's part of it. And and also just I suppose Sean is thinking, look, physics works in building rockets. It works in all this technology. And so we should assume it's basically the same in living bodies and brains, even if we haven't 
investigated to prove that. He, I mean, here's an analogy I thought of the other day that I haven't said to anyone, actually. I suppose it's like all the swans we've seen are white, mm-hmm. uh, but we've never been to Australia. But it's reasonable to suppose, look, we've seen a lot of swans in a lot of places. Probably they're all going to be white. But if we haven't actually been to Australia, is it Australia where they have black swans? I don't know. Let's say I it's Aust- Australia say has it's all kinds of crazy shit. They would, and well, not only are they black swans, they're probably like you know velociraptors that can <laughs> black velociraptor swans that can kill us. <laughs> um, yeah, so so we should still be slightly agnostic as to whether because we haven't been to Australia, maybe the mm. swans there aren't white. I kind of feel the same about that. I think, um, you know, physics works in a lot of places, and it's the same. So yeah, okay, you can kind of think there's some it's some probability it's going to be the same in living brains, but we haven't really in, we don't really know enough about the living brains to about living brains to know whether that's the case. I'm not saying whether something spooky or spiritual pops up, but whether there are causal dynamics in the brain that are not totally reducible to underlying chemistry and physics. And there are people um, investigating this. I mean, there's um, a scientist. Um, uh, Martin Picard at uh, Columbia University has the uh, psychobiology lab and he's studying mitochondria in the brain and under the working hypothesis that these are not re- their behavior is actually to be understood as social networks and huh. is not reducible to underlying chemistry or physics. So that would if that turns out to be true, sh- you see what I mean? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, no, getting this, I'm explaining this a bit clearer as I go along. Then Sean Carroll will be wrong. Sean Carroll is bet is everything's reducible to underlying chemistry or physics. If Martin Picard is right and there are these irreducible social networks of the mitochondria in the brain that are not reducible to underlying chemistry and physics, then that bet is proved false. And I just think we need to be more agnostic because the brain is still massively, massively unknown. We, you know, People get excited by brain scans, but every pixel on a brain scan corresponds to 5.5 million neurons it's very low <laughs> yes. resolution it's it's like so looking it's like, at it's like trying to determine geopolitics by looking at at earth from space like from absolutely. from the moon that's that's what brain scans are like like they're incredibly helpful they're very very important but they're so low resolution that it's basically like trying to understand, you know, the interactions between America and the UK by watching the, you know, planet Earth from Jupiter. Like it, it doesn't work well, very well. Yeah, and and a lot of neuroscientists think that a lot of neuroscientists refer to people who neuroscientists who use too many brain scans as snake oil salesmen. There have been, you know, huh. very, I mean, that's that's not fair. You know, there is. A, there's a lot of important stuff, but you know, uh, you know, I guess it's I guess it's the thing the media jump onto, don't it? Oh my god, we've identified the bit of the brain that, you know, does classical music or something <laughs> anyway. Well but, uh, yeah. Are a you lot of unknowns. Are you familiar with the work of Jaron Lanier? He I don't think I am. So no. so he is one of my favorite writers and he he is like the grandfather of augmented reality and virtual reality and he writes a lot about computer science and he's he was one of the scientists in charge of internet 2.0 which was you know bringing the internet out of the university system and to the public but he's ultimately kind of a philosopher and he, i'm 
going to totally botch his argument here, but he has a book called You Are Not a Gadget. And I think that the basic idea is we tend to see human, you know, we, we tend to reduce human beings to gadgets because that is, we, we see humanity through the lens of our prevailing technology. And so, you know, we use, and, and so when I hear arguments like when I, when I hear arguments like what Sean Carroll puts forth, who let me just clarify is probably like a million times smarter than me. So like, like he, the, the man is a fucking genius. I actually tried to get him on the podcast and he sent me like a very polite emails declining, but um, everyone needs to go listen to his mindscape podcast and read his books on quantum physics. Yeah. The man is a Including genius. Including the episode that I had me on. Yes. That's how I discovered you, by the way. That's, that's because I listened to that fight that you had with Sean Carroll on his podcast but right, it goes on sorry I interrupted you no you're good I sometimes wonder if when we take a mechanistic approach to consciousness and the brain that we are actually imposing the predominant technology onto ourselves. And so, you know, you look through history and it's like, well, we used to be, we used to describe our, ourselves and the universe, not, it, it isn't just ourselves, it's also the universe. You know, we, like back when the clock was invented, we, suddenly there was the clockwork universe. Suddenly there was the the great clockmaker being God or, or the great watchmaker being God. And then suddenly there was, you know, we were clockwork and, and biological processes working as clockwork. And, um, and so on and so forth, right? And so it's like we tend to see not just ourselves, but all of reality through the predominant technology. And so it's almost like inverse anthropomorphizing <laughs> or something where, and I, I, I just sometimes, I don't know. I, I yeah. don't know what consciousness is. I am, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I you know, to quote the fifth tenet of the Satanic Temple, one should, uh, let's see here, uh, we should do our best never to distort scientific facts to fit our beliefs. But I, I sometimes wonder if we, that if consciousness is actually more mysterious and that it actually might be something completely other than a computer. Why are we so confident? Yeah. Why are we so confident that the brain is a computer? Why are we so confident that the mind is a computer? And, and that to me is a like a proposition that is just kind of assumed and yeah. and that it is not at all clear to me that consciousness is basically like an operating system or a computer program that Absolutely. is, you know, that that to me is that to me is just an assumption kind of carrying on this grand legacy of imposing our latest technology on to our experience when the fact is we might it might be something completely different than that you know does that make sense absolutely and i think certainly with the computer case i think neuroscientists are already on the whole seeing the failings of the mm. the mind as a computer model and um yeah i mean i i mean i think this i think in connection to free will as well i think um I mean, I other one of my controversial views is I'm 
more agnostic, but somewhat open to the reality of free will and free will in the strong sense of what philosophers mm. call libertarian free will, that some of our decisions are uncaused. We should talk about that sometime only. because I'm I'm the opposite. I think I gear towards yeah. there being no free will. Oh, that'd be good to discuss. Yeah. But I mean, so one thing, I, I'm somewhat agnostic. We've got to be mm. more agnostic than with consciousness because mm. I, I, it could turn out to be an illusion in, in a way that it's hard to make sense of the feeling of pain being an illusion or something. But I am actually, and we might want to argue about this, I'm actually convinced we, for the reasons I've just been saying, we really don't know enough about the brain to be able to rule it out. And yet so many people are just totally convinced that science has ruled it out. And I think that's part of a sort of zeitgeist, a sort of feel about how science is supposed to look based perhaps on analogies with technology rather than something we've got experiments to back up. Well, we had uh, the neuroscientist Anil Seth on our podcast after his uh, recent book, uh, mm -hmm. Being You, it's a great book. But, you know, I, I mean, I challenged him on free will. I said, you know, your chapter, you, you quickly reject strong libertarian free will. You know, you call it spooky, but... Uh, you know, what is the argument? And and it was just sort of, oh, it's spooky. You know, <laughs> yeah, you, know you, you really believe in that? Oh, it's magic. It's And, you know, okay, look, I'm not, I'm, you know, m maybe it's not there, maybe, but I, I think we need to be clear on, you know, what exactly is, is, is the reason to doubt this thing? And so, yeah, I mean, e even if there are, yeah. Anyway, no, that's it's, it's fascinating. And and obviously we have so much more to talk about and I'd love to have you on again. <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully, y you know, without a, a two year break in between episodes, I would love to have you back on soonish rather than later. Um, oh, well, I'm 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 uh, I'm just I'm just this week, just yesterday, started a new book, which I'm hoping to get a draft of by you. So I've got a precious week, uh, precious <laughs> term off teaching to write Amazing. a book. So, uh, so maybe we can talk about that. What's, at some what's the book about? The purpose of existence. Wow, going <laughs> going big. Well, I can't wait to read it. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we should definitely. Oh, yeah. So I'm thinking about you're thinking that basically that God doesn't exist, but there is a purpose to the universe. Are you a, a non mid a middle way between God and atheism? Sorry, go. On. Yeah, well, are you a are you a non theist or atheist or agnostic? I don't fit nicely into this dichotomy. So I'm I'm definitely an atheist about the traditional omni-god or because of the problem of evil and suffering. I don't think it's mm -hmm. plausible an all-powerful loving God would, would create a universe like this with, you know, creators through the horrific process of natural selection and so on. But I don't take the 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 um the standard atheist view that we're in a totally meaningless universe. I do think there's there's pretty good hmm. pretty good evidence to take seriously the possibility that there there is some kind of purpose, some kind of directionality in the universe. So, and you know, it's just kind of hugely underexplored. Uh, you know, we get stuck in these dichotomies of sort of soviet communism or u.s capitalism you know and <laughs> yeah. which team are you on you know are you a dawkins atheist or do you think the pope's right you know who, <laughs> uh and i've just i've just always found neither option you know i think there's there's problems with with both options so i want to really just really and you know actually we do think of a middle way but we we think of it as fluffy thinking and you know new age sort of not really and I, you know i just want to do a really serious rigorous you know, exploration of 
a middle ground option between traditional God and meaningless universe. And yeah, I'm so, right there with you. I that's that's kind of how I when people I describe myself as a non-theist, and I like that word because it it has more of a religious connotation to it, and it's mm. it's not as hard as atheist culturally, and it. Anyway, we don't need to go down that road, but uh, because we need to wrap this up. But for people who are interested in following your work, listening to your podcast, reading your book, breaking into your classes at Durham and listening in, <laughs> where can they do that? <laughs> where can they find you online? <laughs> yeah, come along. Um, yeah, Philip Goff Philosophy, my website. Um, is that, that .com? is that dot com? Is that dot com? com it is. Okay. Um, Geo Foxtrot Foxtrot. And um, yeah, I do have a blog on there. I've got the most horrible, horribly titled blogs. But so it's but anyway, it's linked to from my website and um, Twitter. Philip underscore Goff. Spend too much time arguing on Twitter. What else? Mind chat. Mind chat is the podcast. And um, yeah, lots of uh, lots of videos and sp- popular articles and stuff on website yeah i try to write every academic article i try to write a popular version of it and um i need to get back to the academic work actually it's i'm sort of getting too taken up by the um i want to it's nice to write stuff that people actually read so then (laughs) but uh, i should probably if i want to get promoted at some point i'll probably get back to writing some academic papers but amazing all right well this has been great and you are welcome back anytime Oh, thank you very much, Stephen. It's been very nice chatting. I, I love your decor. This isn't. This is just audio, right? Oh yes, this is just audio. Yeah, my decor. This is my. This is my office. I have my satanic altar right there behind me. Um, Fantastic. Uh, with tarot, I have like occult yeah. accoutrement all over right, this room. Right. Um, yeah, oh. we need we need to talk about religious fictionalism. Yes, well. I, I still want point, to do that. I'm a sort of so I'm a kind of church going person who doesn't kind of take it literally and um but you know my wife doesn't go with me um and but we actually from following from your podcast i don't know if i mentioned this i watched uh the netflix documentary on oh yes on the yes. satanic temple is it yes satanic? and we were both thinking oh this is this could be a religion we could both go to <laughs> all right well it is great talking to you and that is it for this show the theme song is wild by 117 you can find it on itunes spotify or wherever you listen to music the show is written produced and edited by me stephen bradford long and it is a production of rock candy recordings as always hail satan and thanks for listening (laughs) 